Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. 1 Samuel, chapter 23, beginning at verse 1. When David was told, Look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are looting the threshing floors, he inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? The Lord answered him, Go, attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Here in Judah we are afraid. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the Philistine forces? Once again David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered him, Go down to Keilah, for I am going to give the Philistines into your hand. So David and his men went to Keilah, fought the Philistines, and carried off their livestock. He inflicted heavy losses on the Philistines and saved the people of Keilah. Now Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, had brought the ephod down with him when he fled to David at Keilah. Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah, and he said, God has handed him over to me, for David has imprisoned himself by entering a town with gates and bars. And Saul called up all his forces for battle, to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. When David learned that Saul was plotting against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod. David said, O Lord, God of Israel, your servant has heard definitely that Saul plans to come to Keilah and destroy the town on account of me. Will the citizens of Keilah surrender me to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, God of Israel, tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will. Again David asked, Will the citizens of Keilah surrender me and my men to Saul? And the Lord said, They will. So David and his men, about 600 in number, left Keilah and kept moving from place to place. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he did not go there. David stayed in the desert strongholds and in the hills of the desert of Sif. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. Susan, thank you very much indeed. Well, do please uh, keep your Bibles open uh, to that uh, page and uh, that reading as we continue looking through uh, 1 Samuel. We started it a few weeks back and uh, we'll continue it for the rest of uh, this uh, term until the summer. Uh, something else you might like to do is to dig out uh, the uh, handout. Um, it will help you to see where we're going, and um, I think that might be useful if you want to take notes somewhere for you to scribble notes down as well. Well, as we turn to look at the Bible, let's uh, pray that God would help us with that. Heavenly Father, we uh, do thank you for your word. We see again and again, week after week, day after day, how relevant it is to our lives. We pray that would be very much the same again today. And help us uh, to be amazed, uh, indeed uh, wonder at how uh, beautiful and amazing the Lord Jesus is as our leader. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, it uh, hardly needs saying that for the last six weeks, since the dissolution of Parliament on the 30th of March, the, the nation has been discussing and debating and deliberating who should lead this nation. And now, after many hustings and what it seems to me thousands of election leaflets later, to the great surprise of almost everyone, we have a majority Conservative government. 
Uh, Some here will be delighted, others distraught. But however you feel, much of the debate in these last weeks has surrounded leadership. It is clear that we want someone to lead us who can bring us safety, security, success. We want a leader who will do the right things for us. Someone who will put others before themselves. Someone we can trust. Trust has been one of the great underlying themes of this election. This nation, it seems, hasn't quite forgotten the outrageous scandal of MPs massaging their expenses or of broken promises made last time round. So who can we trust to lead us? Only time will tell whether we can trust those elected this time round. But for the Christian, there is one we can trust, one higher than any MP. I am, of course, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who really does have our best interests at heart, who has sacrificially demonstrated that he puts others before himself. He cares for his people. He really loves his people. And he can give us the security and safety that we so desperately crave. The problem is, following the Christ doesn't seem safe and secure. I mean, let's be honest this morning. On paper, it doesn't always seem a sensible option to follow Jesus Christ. We see that very clearly as we come uh, to 1 Samuel chapter 23, uh, as we look at uh, this Old Testament character of David, as I refer to David through uh, these next few moments As our leader, I am referring to this David and not the other one who's just become the Prime Minister. (laughs) We've seen over these last weeks that David is the Lord's anointed. That was why it was so important I made that previous point. Uh, How David is the Lord's anointed, literally the Christ. He is God's king in God's world. He is a picture of the Christ to come. We've also seen how he was opposed by King Saul, the king the people wanted because they wanted to be like the world around them. Saul represents the leadership of the world and in opposing David, the Christ, Saul is literally, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, the Antichrist. Now as we turn to chapter 23, you may remember from last time that David is on the run from Saul. King Saul is hell-bent on eliminating David. And for that reason, you might expect David to keep his head down and his nose clean, to lay low and stay out of the public eye. But, verse 1, when David was told, look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are looting the threshing floors, he inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go and attack these Philistines? Brings us to our first point, if you're following on the, uh, service, uh, on the uh, sermon outline, David the willing saviour. See, we saw last week at the beginning of chapter 22 that David was holed up in the cave of Adullam. Keilah, this Israelite town under siege, was just a few miles south of Adullam on the western border of Judah near the edge of Philistine territory. The Philistines were, at the time, Israel's arch enemies. And verse 1, apart from fighting against Keilah, the Philistines were looting the threshing floors, making off with the grain. At no grain, no bread, so Keilah was in huge danger of being starved and overrun. And when David heard the plight of the town, verse 2, he asked the Lord if he should attack the Philistines. Isn't that remarkable? David is being pursued by Saul. His, his life is in danger. 
But do you see here, he doesn't think of his own well-being. He thinks of God's people in need and under threat. Now, isn't that exactly the kind of leader you and I wanted? Certainly, it's the kind of leader I want. Someone who doesn't think of himself or his own safety. Someone who isn't in leadership to feather his own nest. Someone who is really for you. Someone so for you that he'll risk his own life for you. Here is David, the Lord's anointed, the Christ, pointing towards the Christ, Jesus. This is exactly the sort of leader that Jesus is, like no other. As we heard right at the beginning of our service, he lays down his life for his sheep. It is the most wonderful thing about the Lord Jesus. He deliberately headed towards Jerusalem and walked to his own death precisely when the leaders and kings of his day were looking to kill him. And he went to Jerusalem because his death on the cross was the only way men and women, you and I, could be saved, made right with God and safe for all eternity. Jesus gave up his life, dying the most excruciating death because he loves you. That's the kind of leader that he is. He is for you. He loves you. Jesus has your best interests at heart. Now, I don't know about you, but I have to keep remembering that because so often I have a kind of warped view of God in my mind. I often find myself slipping into thinking that his commands are there to make my life hard or to stifle me or to take all the fun out of life. When things don't go well in life, I meet Christian people who think that God is out to get them. Well, in David, we see a picture of the Christ And we see that he is fully other person focused, completely for God's people, completely for our good. Whatever it might feel like with the circumstances around, he loves you and is for you. So David inquired of the Lord, verse 2, and the Lord answered him, yes, David should go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But, verse 3, David's men said to him, here in Judah we're afraid. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the Philistine forces? See, in verse 3, we meet those who follow the Christ. People like you and me. I don't know what you're going to say about this, but I want to say right up, this is just like me. Verse 3 is uh, kind of the voice of reason. David only has about 600 men with him, and those men are not 600 highly trained SAS troops. They weren't troops at all. They only went to David because they were in trouble. Do you remember how chapter 22, verse 2 described them? They were distressed, in debt, and discontented. A bunch of no-hopers, losers. And now, here in chapter 23, verse 3, they were afraid. King Saul was after them. They were on the run. And David wants them to fight against the Philistines. Reason, logic, told them to keep their heads down, to lie low. The Philistines were a vicious and bloodthirsty lot. Going into battle against them seemed like a suicide mission. The last thing they wanted to do was draw attention to themselves with King Saul after them as well. So they had very serious questions about David's suggestion to go and save God's people. They sound just like Jesus' first disciples when he headed for Jerusalem. Listen to these words from from Matthew's Gospel. I put the reference on the handout, but you don't need to turn to it. 
Jesus began to explain that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord. See, David's followers questioned him as he headed to Keilah to save God's people. Jesus' disciples questioned him as he headed to Jerusalem to save God's people. And may I say, we do exactly the same. Now, forgive me, I shouldn't tie you with the same brush as me, but this certainly sounds like me. I want to be a follower of Jesus, but I don't want any trouble. I like avoiding confrontation. I certainly don't want to put myself in any danger. I see God's people in parts of the world, in tough parts of the world, in trouble, and I say, I'll pray because that really doesn't cause me too much distress. Sometimes I don't even do that. But I won't go, and often I won't even give, because I want a comfortable life. Look, life's hard enough as it is, I say to myself. Why should I go and fight for others? That's the thinking of those who follow this Christ, David. It's dangerous, So, verse 4, once again David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered him, Go down to Keilah, for I am going to give the Philistines into your hands. Well, you can't get any clearer than that. The Lord assured David of success, and that makes all the difference. The word I there in verse 4 is emphatic. It, It was the Lord who would give the Philistines into David's hands, and knowing that the Lord would do it makes the command to go utterly reasonable. Now listen to John Woodhouse here. I've uh, put his quote on the uh, handout and you might like to follow along as I read it. Notice the close connection between the command and the promise. The command is to go and do something that would normally be terrifying. The promise changes that for I am giving the Philistines into your hand. The command alone seems unreasonable and reckless, but if the promise is true, then the command is completely realistic. See how John Woodhouse continues. The commands of God are always like this. They should never be isolated from the promises of God. Then God's commands seem burdensome, difficult, and even plain terrifying. Consider in isolation the Lord's command, go and make disciples of all nations. How do you think that sounded to the small group of men who first heard it? What could ever make such an extraordinary command acceptable? The promise attached to it. I am with you always to the end of the age. Command and promise together. Only when we get that will we obey God's commands, no matter how risky his commands look. You see, very often, and I started with this, very often Jesus' commands seem madness. Very often it just doesn't seem sensible to follow what Jesus says. Think of the command to the first disciples to leave everything to follow Jesus. Or the command to the rich young ruler to sell everything and give everything to the poor before following Jesus. Those commands alone appear totally reckless as do the commands he gives to us today, to put him first above everything else, everything. 
to love him more than money, indeed to give our money away. I will never obey those commands until I remember the promise, the wonderful promises of the God who is always keeps his promise and always does what is best for us. The promise of the God who lays down his life for the sheep. I remember vividly a conversation I had with a Christian man in his 30s when I was in London. He said to me, I used to be sold out for Jesus Christ. I'd go anywhere for him. I'd do anything for him. He went on to tell me of some of the things he did in the past. He spoke of being fearless in telling his university friends about the Lord Jesus. He spoke of using his summers to serve Jesus in short-term mission in difficult parts of Africa. He recalled reading the Bible each day and ready to obey God, whatever he read. And then he said, now my life is very comfortable. I've settled for a safe Christianity. Now, I wouldn't be at all surprised if there aren't a number of people here who can relate to that. For you, following Jesus isn't as it was anymore. You're still following Jesus, that's why you're here. But it isn't as it was anymore because like those who followed David back then, you're the voice of reason. You hear Jesus' commands and think, it's risky. It's too dangerous to go and fight the Philistines. There's too much uncertainty attached to just up and leave and go. Where's the security if I give away my money? It's not safe to go and live in a different part of the world or even in a different part of the city. No, I couldn't be a mission partner or even go on a church plant. I couldn't do that. And then we sort of shy away from an adventurous spirit when we divorce the command from the promise. When we forget who it is who commands us. When we forget that the God who tells us to go is the same one who loves us and who lays down his life for us and who wouldn't do anything to harm us. And desperately, as a result, we then actually start to listen to the promises of the world. Do you remember them from last time? At chapter 22, verse 6, Saul, that the king, that the king who represents leadership of the world, Saul promised those who followed him in chapter 22, verse 6, fields and vineyards. Do you remember? Materialistic comfort. Come with me. Oh, you'll have everything. And he promised them success. You could become commanders of hundreds and commanders of of thousands. Sit with me and people will look up to you. Comfort and success seem so attractive, so appealing, so safe. But look who's making the promise. And then we see how safe these promises really are. It's very striking when we compare David here at the beginning of chapter 23 with Saul at the end of chapter 22. While David was risking his life to save the people of Keilah, and he did save them in verse 5, while David was saving God's people, Saul, at the end of chapter 22, was overseeing the slaughter of God's priests at this town called Nob. Last week, we saw how Saul was so paranoid and believing that everyone was against him. He did everything he could to protect himself. Here we see David, everyone was against David, and yet he's doing everything he can to save others. There's the choice, the apparently safe choice, Saul, the worldly leader who offers materialistic comfort and success, but who will protect only himself and will turn on you in an instant and hack you to death. Or the apparently risky choice, the Lord's Christ, here David, asking us to go into battle with him, but as we go into dangerous situations, will lay down his life for the sheep. 
We've got to remember that. Remember the promise and who it is who makes the promise. And suddenly the commands are not reckless at all. So verse 5, David and his men went to Keilah, fought the Philistines and carried off the livestock. He inflicted heavy losses on the Philistines and saved the people of Keilah. The Lord kept the promise. And so following the command was entirely safe. And then we read this interesting bit in verse 6. Now, Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, had brought the ephod down with him when he fled to David at Keilah. What's all that about? Well, the ephod was part of the garment that belonged to the high priest. It was part of a kind of waistcoat that the high priest wore on ceremonial occasions. Without going into all the detail, on the breastpiece of the ephod was a jeweled pouch and two rather mysterious objects were kept in this pouch. They were called the Urim and Thummim. They were used by the high priest for divine guidance. That's the key point. If you want to read some more, it's Exodus 28 and it's on the uh, handout. How it all worked is not that clear, this Urim and Thummim, but the point is this. Right through the first six verses of chapter 23, we've seen that whenever David wants advice, he turns to the Lord. We saw it in verse 2, verse 4, and now again it's mentioned, as it's mentioned, the ephod in verse 6. And of course, it's exactly what we see in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Often he withdrew to a quiet place to pray. He sought to go the way of his father. And that is the reassuring truth of following the Christ. When we follow Jesus, we follow the one who is doing his father's will, going about his father's business. And living in God's world as we do, life always works best when we live God's way. So it's great to follow the one who's following God's way. The Lord Christ is the one to follow. Well, the first point then, David's the willing saviour. The next two points are much shorter. Secondly, Saul, and over the page, Saul, the aggressive destroyer. Look at verse 7. Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah and he said, God has handed him over to me for David has imprisoned himself by entering a town with gates and bars. And Saul called up all his forces for battle to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. This is unbelievably wicked. When Saul heard that David was in Keilah, he didn't rejoice that David had saved the people of Keilah from the hands of the Philistines. He simply saw an opportunity to kill David. I find verse 8 gobsmacking. When the town was being overrun by the Philistines, Saul didn't lift a finger. Even though it was Saul's job to save God's people from the Philistines. I mean, it was actually written in his job description. You can look that up later in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 16. Saul is the king, he has great power, he has armies, but he doesn't do a thing when Keilah is under siege. But the moment he sees a chance to do away with David, he mobilises his troops immediately. Saul has great power at his disposal. But we've already seen, he uses it wrongly, he uses it to kill the priests of Nob and now to fight against David. Power in the wrong hands is terrifying. Now we see it in the world today. It was reflected in our prayers earlier. We see monsters who use their power for their own evil ends. Dictators who wield the sword and destroy the lives of ordinary people. When people like Saul, who are deeply insecure, have power, it's a very dangerous thing. 
That said, when anyone who's not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ gets power, they can easily use their power against God and his people. That's what's happening here. In the run-up to the election, I don't know how you've been praying, I've been praying for a government that will use their authority for justice and equity, for the poor and the marginalised. I've been praying that they would use their authority to punish wickedness, because the Bible says that's what they should do. And I've also been praying that they would be for the gospel. Not necessarily Christian, but not against the things of Jesus Christ. See, the greatest need this nation has is to know the gospel of the Lord Jesus. But I fear that increasingly those in power in this nation will marginalise Christians. I hope I'm wrong. We see here how power in the wrong hands is very dangerous. Saul is out to get the Christ. He is the Antichrist. Actually, uh, it's because power in the wrong hands is so dangerous that is a reason why I'm a Christian. There are many. This is just another one. Again, think about it. The one true living God, the almighty, we've already sung in those terms, all-powerful creator of the universe is the God of love. How good is that? The one with ultimate power is love. And so he uses his power for the good of others because he loves He is so not like the gods of this world. The real God who is there is not like the false God of Islam who uses power to control and destroy others. The true and living God is not like the false God of materialism which is powerful in making people mean and tight and unprepared to share with those in need. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is not like the false God of success, which empowers people to walk all over others to achieve their selfish ambitions. See, power in the hands of anyone other than the one true living God of the Bible is terrifying. So here is Saul marching against David and those who follow David. And so at this point in the story, Even though David has defeated the Philistines and released the the town of Keilah, we still might be wondering if David's followers were right when back in verse 3 they expressed their fear to go to Keilah. Saul is bearing down on them. Following the Christ does put us in dangerous situations. Which brings us to our third point. God the sovereign protector, verses 9 to 14. Verse 9, when David learned that Saul was plotting against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod. David said, O Lord, God of Israel, your servant has heard definitely that Saul plans to come to Keilah and destroy the towns on account of me. Will the citizens of Keilah surrender me to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, God of Israel, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will. And David asked, will the citizens of Keilah surrender me and my men to Saul? And the Lord said, They will. Now there it is again, incidentally, David inquiring of the Lord. And you might find it astonishing that the Lord said that the people of Keilah would hand David and his men over to Saul. After all, David had just delivered them from the Philistines. How do we square that? Put yourselves in their shoes for a moment, in the shoes of the people of Keilah. The last thing we heard Saul do at the end of chapter 2 was slaughter a whole town of innocent people. 
As Saul clearly had no intent for a concern for the people of Keilah, he didn't do anything when they were being attacked by the Philistines. My guess is that the people of the town of Keilah were so terrified of Saul that they would have handed David over to Saul to save themselves. And so, verse 13, David and his men, about 600 in number, left Keilah and kept moving from place to place. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he didn't go there. David stayed in the desert strongholds and in the hills of the desert of Ziph. Day after day, Saul searched for him. But God did not give David into his hands. See, all the way through, being with the Lord's Christ, following the Lord's Christ, had looked remarkably risky. But that last phrase is glorious safety. God did not give David into Saul's hands. The Lord simply didn't allow Saul, uh, the, the Lord simply didn't allow Saul to find David. Here is the sovereign work of our God at work. God protects his Christ and those who follow him. And so what looks risky, following Jesus, obeying his commands, putting God first and before everything else, going into risky situations to save others, what looks risky is in fact the safest life of all. And that is brilliant to remember. It's brilliant to remember any time, and it's brilliant to remember this week of all weeks. The nation has voted, and whether we think the future looks brighter or bleaker today than it did this time last week, Be assured that in Christ we are no more safe and no less safe this week than we were last week. It is God who protects those who follows his Christ. And whatever happens to this nation and in this nation, in Christ we're following the greatest leader. The one who lays down his life for the sheep. The one who only does what his father tells him to do. The one who has great power but always uses it for the good of his people because he loves you. Knowing that should give us the confidence to live unreservedly for Jesus Christ even when his his commands look risky. To live unreservedly for him, to fully obey him, to follow him for a lifetime of adventurous risk-taking with him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this another wonderful picture of the King, the Lord Jesus. Uh, We thank you for this vivid picture of the Christ laying down his life to save God's people. We thank you that we follow one who loves us that much. And we thank you that even though at times it looks risky to follow him, it is by far the safest way to go. We ask you to help us to believe that and in believing it to be able to serve you whatever you say for the rest of our days. Amen.